Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. In the last Instagram poll, you voted for ramen. And I had the right books at hand, so I didn't want to put it off for too long. Besides, I thought it would be a pretty easy topic to cover. The dish is rather new and simple. Well, I was wrong. As I never expected that a humble noodle soup would take me on such an exciting journey. And it's longer than it seems. So, let's begin. Ramen, just like curry rice, is firmly established in the category of kokuminshoku, the national food of Japan. But while curry is often prepared at home, ramen remains a restaurant food. If you can call the establishments that serve it by that name, of course. By rough estimate, more than 80,000 joints around the country serve ramen, of which only 26,000 are specialized ramen shops. The Japanese eat 800 billion yen worth of ramen every year. And that's not even counting another 5 billion packages of instant noodles, which don't seem to be treated as the same product. The origins of this omnipresent dish seem to be very clear. The roots of ramen just have to be found in China. There, in Lanzhou, you can even find noodles with a similar name. Lam yen. Long, hand-stretched, plastic just like ramen. These noodles were invented during the Son era, somewhere between the late 10th and 13th centuries, which is late Heian and Kamakura periods by Japanese standards. The Japanese of the time would probably find chewy noodles quiet and appetizing. Besides, contacts with the continent were limited, so lamian wasn't something they were going to try for a while yet. And then, was it even lamian? The first theory of ramen's origin dates back to 1987, when food historian Kosuge Keiko published Japan's first book on the history of ramen. It ascribed the birth of the dish as early as July 1665, and even listed the person who first tasted it as the influential daimyo of Mitohan and a relative of shoguns, Tokugawa Mitsukuni. The version is based on the true story of the Chinese scholar Zhu Jiyu, known in Japan as Xu Shunsui, who served and taught at Mitsukuni's residence. Shunsui came to Japan after escaping political repressions in his native China, and in 1664 Tokugawa Mitsukuni offered the scholar a teaching position. About a year later, after learning that Mitsukuni was a huge fan of udon wheat noodles, Shunsu recommended him several ingredients that are often used to make noodle soup in China. The exact recipe of the dish does not appear in the records, and indeed why would it? It is unlikely that the Japanese daimyo and Chinese scholar made it personally. It only says that the Chinese dish tastes a lot like udon. Scientists, nevertheless, tried to recreate the first ramen by cooking a broth of salted ham seasoned with shiitake mushrooms, leeks, garlic and shallots and garnished with pine nuts and goji berries. The connection between the beloved folk dish and the popular character Mitsukuni, better known as Mito Komon and the main character of the TV series of the same name, was just a ready-made advertisement campaign. 
The story of Mitsukuni and ramen was further popularized by the Ramen Museum in Shinyokohama, opened in 1994. And in 2003, Nissin Food Corporation, the world's largest manufacturer of instant noodles, for a limited time released the Ushin brand of instant ramen, packaged with a Tokugawa clan crest and adorned with a touching story of friendship between Mitsukuni and Ju. The flavoring included Chinese onions, garlic, ginger and green onions. But no matter how good this story might be, Mitsukuni's private kitchen was out of reach for the general public. And so the recipe of the first ramen has never made it beyond its walls. According to another theory, the predecessor of ramen appeared in Japan 200 years later, during the Meiji era, when the country opened up to the world and foreigners poured into the trading ports of Yokohama, Kobe, Nagasaki and Hakodate. Of course, there were also plenty of Chinese among them, and with the consular protection of the japan sin Friendship Agreement of 1871, they were no longer dependent on European employers and began to operate independently. With them, the Chinese workers and merchants brought their national cuisine. In the 1880s, Chinese restaurants began to appear in the port cities. And there, visitors were served noodles. According to contemporary descriptions, the ancestor of ramen was just a clear soup made with salted chicken broth and green onions. The Japanese named noodle soup Nankin Soba, after the Chinese capital city of Nanjing. Few people, however, had an opportunity to try the soup at that time. In 1884, a restaurant called Yowaken opens in Hakodate, the northernmost port city open to foreigners. Nankin soba is served there, among other interpretations of foreign foods. And then the history of ramen gradually turns into the history of military conflicts. In 1895, Japan defeats China and takes over Taiwan. Soldiers return home, bringing with them recipes of new dishes from the conquered territories. At the same time, Japan's own industrialization is also taking place. More and more people flock from the villages to the big industrial hubs and live away from home for long periods of time. In addition to the workers, large cities also gather students, including those from China. The growth in wage laborers and foreign students in the 1980s created a heightened demand for eateries and outdoor dining establishments in the cities. In 1899, a law allowed foreigners to live and do business outside special settlements in port cities. And following Chinese students and chefs, Nankin soba spread across Japan. By the late 19th century, Chinese noodles were served in both Chinese and Western restaurants and even from small pushcarts that appeared in Ueno and Asakusa in early 1900s. In 1910, Rai Rai Ken, the first Chinese food restaurant owned and operated by a Japanese national, opened in the Asakusa district of Tokyo. The owner of the restaurant was Ozaki Kenichi, a retired customs agent from Yokohama. In his days as a customs official, Ozaki frequented the Chinese restaurants of Nankinmachi. So, when he left the service, he recruited a number of Chinese chefs to work in his new establishment. Rai Ken served its customers shumai pork dumplings, wonton soup and Chinese noodles, 
prepared using a special recipe adjusted to the tastes of the Japanese, who prefer the flavor of soy sauce over salt. The soup also featured pickled bamboo shoots, slices of roasted pork and knotty seaweed. The dish appeared in the menu under the name Shinasoba and formed the model for authentic Tokyo-style ramen. There are a lot of Rairaiken-like ramen pioneers in Japan. Their stories are all somewhat similar and considerably embellished, so that it's almost impossible to tell the truth from fiction. But there were indeed many of them. Of the many stories, however, a few are worth telling. The story of Takeya Cantin in Sapporo is one of them. In 1922, Takeya Dining Hall, which mainly catered to students and railway workers, hired a Chinese chef, Wang Wenxiai, and changed the menu to include several Chinese dishes. A dish called Shina Soba, or Chinese Soba, was particularly popular. Unlike the soft and easily broken soba noodles familiar to the Japanese, the Chinese chef's noodles were firm due to the addition of alkaline water, or simply put, water with baking soda in the door. Served in a salty chicken broth with vegetables, the noodles quickly won over the stomachs of the diners. However, the wife or the proprietor witnessed how one and other Chinese workers often endured insults from the customers, who would order the noodle dish using the terms chankoro soba and chan soba, chankoro and chan chan being some of the most derogatory Japanese terms for a Chinese person at the time. To end the use of such insults, she decided to rename the dish. Now, it was just a matter of picking a suitable name. One story suggests that the name Rumen, meaning willow noodles, originated from the willow trees in front of the restaurant. Another says that the name came from Yokohama, where same-sounding but differently spelled word was used for street noodle stalls. A third, and most plausible, the word ramen was borrowed from the chef himself, who called the dish lamien. Written in Japanese alphabet, the word evolved into ta-men. And it caught on, not only breaking customers' habit of calling chiefs' names, but spreading throughout Sapporo, making it the first place in Japan where ramen displaced the much more commonly used shinasoba. Meanwhile, in other big cities, the owners of small noodle carts would emerge in the evenings. Shouting, shinasoba, shinasoba, they would gather a mixed crowd, ranging from hungry students, rickshaws and factory workers, to carefree party-goers or tourists from the countryside, who sought to experience the flavors of the big city and the low cost. Thus, in the 1920s, Shinasoba became both a food of the working class and an integral part of the nightlife. It is even said that in Asakusa district, the entertainment center of Tokyo, the air reeked of Chinese noodles. Against the backdrop of Japan's troubled relationship with China, Shinasoba was associated with something inappropriate, even indecent. But this was the very basis for its popularity among nightlife revelers and rebellious teenagers. The quickness of the service also added to the appeal of the dish among the ever-hurried citizens. Soup and sauce for the noodles were prepared in advance for the whole day, and once an order was placed, the customer only had to wait a few minutes for the soup to heat and noodles to boil. So, 
In the 1920s, shina soba, nankin soba, ramen and other Chinese noodles variation firmly took their place in the fast-changing life of an industrial city. After all, what could better reflect it than a fast-food dish filled with salt, animal fat and factory-made wheat products? Indeed, nothing. And Ozu Yasujiro's 1936 film Hitori Musuko shows us precisely this. The movie tells the story of a widow who tries to reunite with her only son, who has moved to the city in search of work. After not seeing him for 13 years, she decides to travel to Tokyo to visit him. The son tries to show his mother city life and in one episode offers her a little treat he can afford, a bowl of Chinese noodles from a street vendor's stall. The provincial woman is completely unfamiliar with the dish, and the son even has to persuade her to try it. It's a very simple, but a very illustrative scene. In 1937, the second Sino-Japanese war begins. In December of the same year, Japanese troops take Nanjing. And the following year, a chef named Miyamoto Tokyo opens a Chinese noodle stall in the small town of Kurume in Kyushu. Yamato's main customers were students and soldiers, and the shop was given the name Nankin Senryo, a phrase that sounds very similar to the occupation of Nanjing. This episode is important to us not because it shows the popular mood of the time, it is just so happens that the same Miyamoto Tokyo came up with the recipe for tonkotsu, a strong pork bone soup spread all over Kyushu and became one of the most popular types of modern ramen. But the days of noodle pushcarts were numbered. Japan's economy was mobilizing for war effort, and gradually more and more foods and other daily necessities were withdrawn from the market and distributed through a system of government food rationing. First implemented under the National General Mobilization Law of 1938, by 1942, the state had established a rigid system of rationing, especially for strategically important rice, flour, eggs, fish, vegetable oil and sugar. At the same time, the sales of ready-made foods were first restricted and then completely banned, and Shinasova became a scene of the past. On 15th of August 1945, Japan surrendered. The country was exhausted and devastated by the war. From the propaganda of the war years, the Japanese learned that they should eat rice. But there was no rice, and noodles became a socially acceptable alternative. At the beginning, though, there was not much of them either, although soon the US began to supply Japan with colossal quantities of wheat. However, the occupation headquarters decided to extend the ban on the sale of cooked food, and stalls with Chinese noodles settled on the black market. The noodles were now referred to by a different name, chukasoba, although the old names were still in use. The police would occasionally crack down on the shopkeepers, but they would not go after any of the big suppliers, and everything went on as before. Hungry times in Japan would last until 1947, and during that time chukasoba, okonomiyaki cabbage flatbreads, Yakisoba fried noodles and other black market dishes made from American wheat would gain the status of stamina foods. 
1950, restrictions on the sale of ready-made foods were lifted, and two years later, the occupation would come to an end too. Nozuyasu Jiro's film, Ochazuke no Aji, released in the last year of the occupation, the already familiar noodles would be referred to as ramen for the first time in the history of Japanese cinema. As long as the economic growth of the 50s, Japan seemed to repeat the history of the similarly booming 20s. Ramen once again became the food of students and blue-collar workers and the night snack of cinema goers, as well as visitors to clubs, bars and pachinko parlors. In 1954, Hanamori Yasuji, editor of the magazine Kurashi no Techo, wrote an article, Sapporo, the city of ramen, for the weekly Asahi in which he noted the rapid growth of noodle shops and a variety of dining establishments in the city. In 1958, Hanke department store in Osaka introduced its customers to a new product, chicken ramen. For just 35 yen, about the same price as a bowl of ramen served in a Chinese restaurant, they could purchase a pack of instant noodles, which, according to the manufacturer, by adding boiling water in just two minutes, turned into a nutritious and satisfying hot lunch. In the same 50s and 60s, outdoor noodle stalls gradually turned into modest little noodle shops. And in the early 70s, journalists would identify a phenomenon called Datsusara, office workers who gave up stable jobs to run their own businesses. In 1971, one of these oddballs would start Tenka Ipin, one of the biggest ramen chains in the country, while other small joints with a steady inflow of fresh datsusara would evolve into chain establishments. Also, in 1970s, Japanese Prime Minister Tanaka Kakuei launched a regional development project Machio Koshi Undo. The program was aimed at identifying distinctive features of Japanese regions to attract investors and tourists. Local business associations with the support of national television would try their best to interest visitors from the capital in local festivals, crafts and attractions. Or cuisine, the unique local ramen, for example. Japan thus initiates a tourist boom, and with it, the first ramen tourists emerge. In the 80s, the Japanese seemed to completely lose their heads over ramen. Young people who grew up in the cities without experiencing the hardships of the post-war period will turn into the customers of ramen shops. The new generation doesn't just want a hearty meal. It wants something tasty, trendy and unusual. Out of the many noodle shops, they are attracted to those where the chefs take their crafts seriously. The consumption of ramen becomes an entertainment in itself. A new wave of ramen tourists is willing to spend an entire day driving to a particularly famous restaurant. Popularity is no longer achieved by word of mouth, but by mentions in specialized magazines and TV programs. At the same time, the first books devoted to ramen are published, and the hours-long queues that line up in front of popular establishments get the name ramen goretsu, ramen queues. In 1995, Itami Juzo's film Tampopo premieres in cinemas. And unlike Ozuya Sujiro's works, where ramen is just a way of emphasizing the poverty or rustic nature of the characters or the setting, 
in Tampopo it becomes the main character. The comedy movie shows us how Japanese attitudes toward ramen and food in general have changed. Canteens and restaurants are no longer used merely to fill one's stomach. They are there to entertain, and chefs try to express their thoughts and feelings through the food they serve and do their best to dazzle the public. By the 1990s, ramen had finally conquered Japan. Celebrity chefs moved from one TV channel to another and wrote books about their ramen philosophies, while an entire ramen museum was being built in Yokohama. The museum, which opened its doors in 1994, not only introduced guests to the history and varieties of ramen, but also included a mini theme park, immersing visitors in the atmosphere of Tokyo in 1958 where the evening streets were lined with ramen shops from prominent chefs of today. Then, in 1996, ramen would change again with the advent of the internet. Customers began putting images of ramen on the internet. Before that, a ramen maker could visit different ramen shops and just steal their techniques. After 1996, you could see if one ramen shop was a copy of another. Ramen shops had to start developing original styles. Since 1996, the number of types of ramen has doubled. The difference before and after 1996 is like BC and AD, says ramen expert Osaki Hiroshi. But most importantly, in the 90s, ramen becomes truly Japanese. Red and white signs and white chef's uniforms, which were a tribute to the dish's distant Chinese roots, and becoming a scene of the past, replaced by black and purple signs with handwritten calligraphy and uniforms referring to porters and Buddhist monks. In the 21st century, ramen has become a true symbol of Japanese culture abroad. In 2005, astronaut Soichi Noguchi even ate specially prepared space ramen aboard a space shuttle Discovery. And two years later, American Ivan Orkin will open Aiwan Ramen restaurant in Tokyo. Today, Japanese and foreign tourists continue to travel around the country, sampling regional and other unusual ramen varieties. The annual Tokyo Ramen Show attracts 400,000 noodle soup lovers each year, and Hiroshi Osaki continues to eat 7-800 bowls of ramen a year, now as a director of a Japanese ramen association. Of course, with such popularity, ramen has acquired an endless list of variations. But the components of the dish remain more or less the same, so let me tell you about them, and then you can decide which ramen types you prefer. Let's start with the broth. For if in China it is mostly noodles, in Japan the most attention is paid to the soup, that takes many hours to boil and contains the most expensive ingredients. All the numerous soups are divided into just two categories – clear broth and tonkotsu soup. The clear soup can be made of chicken, meat, fish, seafood, vegetables or a mixture of all of the above in various proportions. Some ramen chefs separately prepare two soups and mix them in the bowl right before serving to achieve the greatest depth of flavor. Regional differences also come into play. In Tokyo, for instance, chicken broth is seen as a staple, while in the south island of Kyushu, pork is king. 
It was also there, in Kyushu, that the second kind of soup, tonkotsu, was born. It is made from pork bones cooked for many, many hours. During the cooking process, the collagen they contain is destroyed, giving the soup its milky color. The next component of ramen is flavorful tare sauce. It is also used to determine the type of ramen. Tonkotsu soup has a rich flavor of its own and does not need tare. As for the clear soups, you can choose from three types. Salt-based tare will make shio ramen. Miso-based, miso ramen. And soy sauce-based tare will result in shoyu ramen. You can, of course, do without adding anything, but this is a very rare case. And the recipe for the signature tare is protected by the chef as much as the recipe for the original soup. As for the famous springy ramen noodles, they follow the soup and tare. Therefore, they can be thin or thick, flat or round, straight or curly, as long as they match a certain type of the dish. And just in case, udon, soba, harusame noodles or pasta cannot be called ramen, even if they are served in the same broth and tare. Unlike soup or tare, the composition of ramen noodles is not a secret. They consist of flour, water, salt and alkaline water called kansui, which at home can be replaced with baking soda. Admittedly, the secret of yummy noodles lies in proportions, and every chef has his or her own favorite ratio. Sometimes an egg is added, but there are also chefs who think it just spoils everything. If you take ramen noodle out of the soup and squeeze it, the broth will appear on the surface. But if you cut the noodle, you'll see that while the broth rich outside is almost translucent, its core is still hard and chewy, preventing the noodles from getting soft. Before serving, a small scoop of tare is poured into a deep bowl, followed by the broth, into which the noodles, cooked separately and shaken well to remove the water, are placed. And on top of that come numerous toppings. It's hard to imagine a bowl of ramen without a slice of chashu pork, boiled egg, pickled bamboo and finely chopped green onions. Once all the ingredients have been placed in the bowl, it is immediately served to the customer. But before we begin, let's talk about manners. I understand that you have queued for a bowl of delicious noodles, but don't attack it right away. Firstly, you'll burn yourself, and secondly, a true gourmand will start by devouring ramen with his eyes and taking in the aroma that comes with the steam. One, two, three. Now you can take the chopsticks. By the way, if they're disposable, you don't have to rub them against one another after breaking them. They aren't usually cheap and you will just end up with unwanted wood dust in your bowl. Or better yet, put down the chopsticks. Eating ramen with chopsticks and a spoon is an advanced level. Beginners are better to take a spoon and taste the broth first. Done. Now feel free to grab the chopsticks and start slurping the noodles. This is the part where our western manners are very different from the Japanese. You don't wrap long noodles on chopsticks like spaghetti on fork. 
you grab them in small portions and bring them to your mouth. Then, imagine you have become a vacuum cleaner and vigorously suck the noodles in, at the same time using chopsticks to help them stay on the right track and not to splash broth all over you or people around. Slurping is tricky, and not everyone can do it, not even all the Japanese. Don't torture yourself. But if you're absolutely determined to try, come to a restaurant in an old t-shirt or ask for a paper apron. A truly great invention of the mankind. But if it's so difficult, why do the Japanese still persist in slurping noodles? Not because it pleases the cook to spend the whole day listening to their sniffling. That's one big fat internet myth. You slurp because the noodles are served in a boiling soup and get soggy quite fast if you don't eat them. Plus, when you slurp the noodles, you take more air into your mouth, which helps you not only to cool the noodles, but also to take in more aroma. And therefore, it will taste better to you. That's in theory. In practice, look at me. I can slurp properly and still burn my mouth all the time and, oh no, Sometimes I even bite off noodles that won't fit in my mouth. And that's okay. Ramen is fast food after all. That said, I'd still recommend you start by trying first broth and then noodles. And after, you can proceed to toppings and enjoy the dish in whatever way you like. Another rule of Japanese ramen shop is not to overstay your welcome. Tiny restaurants are simply not designed for spending much time in them. Therefore, having finished a meal, ask for the bill, pay and leave the restaurant. That is still nothing. Some especially strict chefs put up the announcement on the entrance that all conversations are prohibited. This, however, is the exception rather than the rule, but the trend for charismatic chefs does have some unintended consequences. That's all for today. Not sure about you, but I always find dishes with an interesting history, tastier than before. In any case, I wish you a satisfying and delicious ramen experience. In the meantime, don't forget to check out japanexplained.com for more information on the episode and a link to a bonus mini-episode on regional ramen varieties. Remember, I'm always happy to get your comments via email or Instagram or material support that will go towards improving the podcast. Talk to you soon. Bye.